Lacrosse All-Stars presents In Your Face LaxCast. Unfiltered opinions on the most controversial topics in the game of lacrosse. I'm Ryan Dennehy, former Division I college and pro player and Division I college coach, currently living and coaching in the city of Philadelphia. I'm joined with my co-host, Andy Towers, the legend, former Division I college head coach, MLL All-Star, three-time All-American, and arguably the best to ever play the midfield position. Each show, we dive into the world of lacrosse from high school, college, to pro, as well as bring on special guests. You can subscribe to us via iTunes and check us out on Twitter at InYourFaceLax for more information. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. Another big week, man. This has been crazy. Uh, Division One lacrosse has been wild this year. It's 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 uh, basically similar to the similar to the NFL. Um, conferences are going crazy. Uh, teams are beating each other up. Um, but first things first, at let's get to the stat rundown. The serious, the most important stats that we do on in your face, which is our picks. Uh, can you go through that real quick? I just want to find out who's winning uh, the matches, who's winning the betting here, uh, who's making the best picks. Uh, well, so far you've made the best picks, right? <laughs> uh, can you can you elaborate more on that? I, I I really need you to elaborate more on that. Listen, we we tied the first week. It was I think nine four nine four. You won the rock bottom bowl the first week. Yes. And one that counts double the rock bottom bowl. So you won one there, and then uh, the second week we tied again, and you won the rock bottom bowl again on that, didn't you? Uh, Uh, No, you run. I won. I won outright on that one. You won the rock bottom bowl because you picked uh, Mercer or VMI. I picked uh, NGIT, but I was already up three uh, three games to you, so that I ended up winning by one. Right. So you've you've won three weeks in a row. Yep. That's that's the bad news. The good news is that there's still like eight weeks left. Wait, so you, you neglected to talk about this week when we picked him with Dante? You just kind of breathed over that to go your three and out? Yeah, I blew over it. I saw Dante <laughs> was eight and eight. I was 11 Dante and five. Dante went 500. You were 11 and five. But, well, we both no, had we, Dar- both we all had Dartmouth in the rock bottom bowl and they lost yes. to Wagner at home. It was Detroit covered yeah, on, on Sunday. Yeah, on Sunday. sucked. <laughs> Detroit covered on Sunday. The W and the belt. So what am I up? Overall, I'm up three games over total three, three games, three weeks, right? Three weeks, three games over three weeks, which is incredible. There's not too many. There's not too many uh, games that we're actually. There's there's quite a few games that we disagree on. So it's interesting. All of our losses must be in tandem. Weird. Uh, in MCLA news, MCLA news. We're actually going to give credit to the MCLA here. They got themselves in the run in the rundown, the opening rundown here. Simon Fraser, Canadian University, Burnaby, uh, BC, beats Washington State University 45 to nothing. Going into the game, they were 1 in 5 going into the game. They beat Washington State last year 13 to 7, but this year 45 to nothing. 
maybe he kept his players in so that they could, you know, create and, and obtain a, a uh, offensive identity. And they felt that they needed to throw 45 <laughs> up on their opponent in order to come out of that game. They're focusing on us. You know, at what point do you say, all right, guys, you know, we're going to treat this as a 0-0 game. It's 43-0. It's <laughs> and we just this is a zero zero game. Okay, bring it in here tight. Ready, break. Right. <laughs> I mean, this this coach should be fired. Well, what he should do, what he should do is he should have to mandatorily play Denver. You beat somebody forty five to zip, immediately your next opponent gets you get put on Denver's schedule and you gotta go play Denver. And Denver's gonna work on you know, creating their offensive identity during that time. <laughs> and I have a feeling that you're going to be limping to the bus. That's uh, my guess. AP last night, um, huge Twitter argument on the shot clock um, or the lack thereof, or uh, basically the argument started where uh, Richmond at the end of the Duke game seemed to get really quick stalling warnings uh, or stall calls on them. Uh, basically, th- the argument was that in the beginning of the game, the refs didn't call the game or the stalls the same way as they did at the end of the game. They were quick to pull the trigger on it, uh, which constantly leads us to the question of should we have a shot clock in NCAA Division One lacrosse? Um, what are your thoughts, A.T.? Right off the bat, in terms of a shot clock, no shot clock. Uh, there's, there's absolutely no doubt that the game has to have a shot clock. You know, you look at a game like Duke and Richmond, and everybody expects Duke to win, and they call. You know, no, they're they're very slow to call at the beginning when the game's zero zero, but as it comes down the stretch and Duke gets closer to you know being upset at home. You know, then it all of a sudden changes. And it always sort of feels like that. Like that it's, you know, the 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 powers or the refs, whoever it may be, sort of want the favored teams to win these games. And if you institute a shot clock, it takes all of the subjectivity that the refs, right. you know, can hide behind in calling these games and... You simply create a fair and and more even playing field. It's consistent, the same way they, you know, corrected the way the faceoff, you know, was officiated. Now you do the exact same thing with a shot clock. Now I get that there are issues as it relates to certain set setups on fields that you know where do they put the shot clock, all that sort of stuff. I, I get all that. The reality is this sport needs the shot clock, and I believe it has to start right when there's a change of possession. And, you know, whether that's 45 seconds, whether it's a minute, you know, I would I would shade on the side of definitely not shorter than a minute. I think if, if you make it too fast, now it's back to favoring the deeper and more athletic rosters right. again. You know, I think you want to put the referees in a position to succeed. You want to certainly create a fair platform for the games to be decided on the field not by, you know, officials that maybe want to officiate a game that's in the best interest of the favored teams, seeing that they want to officiate the Final Four, so they want to stay in the good graces of the coaches at the best programs, 
and have a tendency to, you know, officiate games down the stretch that are in the best interest of the more favored teams, right? right. And, you know, that that's right. that's the problem. And if and if you if you put a shot clock in the game, now you're taking it out of the referees' hands, and they're now in a position to be more successful, and the game settled on the field as opposed to uh, being settled for for some reason that you know, isn't in the spirit of competition in general. Right. Uh, so, you know, in terms of, you know, the argument last night on Twitter, we had uh, varying numbers of what that shot clock should be. Uh, Clark pulled out, you know, it should be 20 seconds to get across the midline, 60 seconds once you get it past the midline. That's two different uh, shot clocks. Uh, that That's interesting only because once it gets past the midline, so we have the backcourt rule or the backfield rule, whatever you want to call it, over and back. We have that rule, but it, it only starts once you touch into the box, then the backcourt rule becomes into play. By having... You can eliminate all of that. You don't need to... You shouldn't even have to worry about clearing the ball, you know, in that type of situation. If, if it's but then, but then out. you're getting into the FIL situation where literally, if you had a 75 seconds, let's just say it's let's just say it's 75 seconds, right? Because you said it shouldn't be anything shorter than 60. I actually think it should be 75. It can't be 90 because then we'll literally we'll all fall asleep, and I can promise you that. My thing is, is there has to be just like basketball, there has to be an advancement clock, right? Because otherwise, the teams would use all 35 seconds. You know, bringing the bringing the basketball up the court, but at least hey, listen, advance the ball. You got ten seconds to advance the ball. In my my opinion, I think you should have thirty, just the way it is in the game. You got to get thirty to advance the ball. In that way, rides actually matter. You have thirty seconds to get it inside the box. Once it's inside the box, I think at that point, from the start of the possession, back when you were clearing, seventy five seconds, that clock goes on. So it's about fifteen seconds. It is fifteen seconds longer than the MLL, which I think is legitimate. If you added 15 more seconds the MLL and about five more practices a week for those guys, you'd have a lot more product on the field in terms of schematics, offense, defense, ride techniques, all that kind of stuff. You'd be able to put all that in. And I think Division One coaches can do that uh, with 75 seconds. I don't think you take away from what we have now, which is an incredibly well-coached product on the field. And that was my biggest fear. In 90 seconds, now you're just coaching to the, the rules of the game. 75 seconds, you're actually coaching to the, you know, to the lacrosse game. And if it's 60, it's all of a sudden it's just like run a gun. And again, like you said, uh, it turns into all the best teams with the best athletes are going to win every single time. Um, so my thing is have an advanced clock, get it into 30. My only issue with, say, a 75-second clock or even, say, a 90- or 60-second clock once you step it in is that once the ball goes off the pipe, or get saved, which happens about three or so times a game. And a lot of those times happen when guys are freaking out, chasing it down at the end of games where possessions are all crazy, guys going nuts, trying to pick up the ball. A lot of those rebounds happen. Imagine if that was picked up and now you got 90 seconds again. That's my only issue. My only issue is that there should be a second reset. Like for me, I think it should be 45 seconds, which is an, an enormous amount of time but in a game where it's 90 seconds left and Richmond, it happened last night against Duke, they picked up the ball. And if we did have a 90 second shot clock, they could run out the ball, you know, run out the game again. And Duke never sees the ball again in the rest of the game versus Duke now playing solid defense again. Okay, no problem. They're down two. They've got two possessions left. It's a two possession game, right? And 
you know, they can get the ball back. They can actually play good defense versus having to come out 90, you know, 90 seconds left and all of a sudden it goes from a two-goal game to a four-goal game because, you know, Duke's running out and they get the goalie out. So that's my kind of thought. It's just that, you know, fix the game so that the end-of-game scenarios, there's some integrity to end-of-game scenarios. And being able to have a separate reset and a separate time for when the ball goes off a goalie or off a pipe and the offense picks it back up, I think I don't think you should have the full amount of time that you would to clear the ball and back. My response would be do a better job in the first 59 minutes of the game and you don't have to worry about that. Fair enough. I, I think part of what is not good about today's game is that the defenses are too conservative. Right? You go to you know sort of the late 80s, early 90s, you know, one of the best parts of the game was the stick checking and stepping out around the perimeter. It seems like with the with the and this may be a different conversation, but with the design of today's sticks, you know, a good check doesn't necessarily put the ball on the ground. And so you look at that and you think, why would we extend around the perimeter and force the tempo defensively outside of Army and a couple of teams? Uh, you know, that do step around, around the perimeter still, you know, wh where's the incentive to do that if a good check doesn't put the ball on the ground and, and you can end up going to the penalty box for that? I think with a shot clock at 90 seconds, you think, how is it going to be, you know, how's it going to be officiated? I think you get a save, it's 90 seconds till you have to get a shot. Yep. Now, 30 yep. seconds, you have to get the ball to the midfield line. I, I think that's a very valid point that it makes sense that you can't just sit back in your defensive end, especially when you have seven and they have six. It just, I, I, I agree with that. So you get 90 seconds on the change of possession. 30 of those seconds have to be to get the ball over the midline. Well, it would be to get you it know, in the box. You get a box. shot, you hit a pipe, that resets. I think that resets 60 seconds again. You know, I don't think it resets, you know, 90 so, because so you're you not do, having to go. So you, do, so you do agree that there is a problem with just resetting it to the original amount of time every single time. Yeah, because there's a difference. Because there's a difference in that you have to clear the ball in one instance, in the other instance you don't. Right. And if there's 30 seconds to get it across the midline, then hack that off to 90 seconds, and now you've got a minute. You get a shot, it hits the pipe, or the goalie hits a save, whatever the deal is. That resets it to 60 seconds. And if a team is down, then they got to overextend around the perimeter. I mean, that's part of the game. Right. It's, it's, right. It, right. Makes sense. Right. Well, my thing is, is that the average Division One possession right now is under a minute, and we're already bitching about possession time. So if we're bitching about possession time, and the average Division One possession is less than a minute, then make it 45, and boom, that's it. Like That's why I say 75, 45. You say 90 and 60. A lot of people say 90 and 60, but watch next year, and, and I made the argument like, oh, watch the girls' game this year. They don't even have the 90-second shot clock this year. They have it next year, but watch the women's game next year. You're going to see how brutally long 90 seconds is, and the women next year, I can guarantee you after 90 seconds, they're going to be like, wow, that was a massive improvement to our game, but it's still brutally brutally long 90 seconds um so that's that that would be my only argument 75 45 you shorten every possession by about 10 seconds that's what you're doing you increase pace across the board and we end up having a little bit more exciting of a game not that i don't think it is i don't actually think it's an exci a, a non-exciting game I, I love the way our game is being played right now it's just incredibly well coached and to be honest well played too and the kids are just that much better. And then on the stick part, part, I get the whole, like, you know, the checks don't come out. But here's the thing. We also don't get the Lyle Thompsons and the Mikey Powells of the world either without the new sticks. 
and the flash and the toe drags and the Mark Matthews of the world. We don't get that either. If we design these sticks where the ball comes out pretty frequently, it's just hard to do. Uh, so there is a balance between the two. And, you know, to be honest, it, it, you know, the toe drags of the world and the face dodges and the rollbacks and the BTBs and all these crazy dangles, you know, sell more seats than takeaway checks, in my opinion. So I don't know. But all right, we're going to take a quick break right here. We're going to be back with uh, our speed round. and We're going to start talking games. All right, welcome back. Speed round time. We're going to go through how many games we got on the rundown today? About six, six or seven. seven. We got about six or seven games we're going to run down. First one up, Syracuse, Virginia. Personally, I was able to see a lot of this. This was Friday night. 27 goals. I thought it was an exciting, entertaining game. Seven goals scored on man up. Opportunities. Ten total penalties. Physical, physical game. What were your thoughts, AT? I got to watch the game, too, and it was an unbelievable game, as uh, anybody that watched it could see. Right. You know, I think, again, while this was Virginia's best overall game, they're starting to get on track. You know, they shot the most efficiently they have all year long. They competed. Uh, they were every bit, you know, the equal opponent to Syracuse. It, it, it comes down again, just another instance, Ben Williams, 18 for 29 at the X, yep. and it's just too much. Right. You know, you look at Syracuse, Denver, and Villanova, Brown. You got these these teams that have these face-off guys that week in, week out, you know, are winning close to 70% of the face-offs, if not more. And then you see this team win a one-goal game, and they've had, you know, a major advantage in the amount of possession time. You know, Virginia, Virginia has got to find an answer there if they want to win enough games to make the playoffs. The other obvious stat to me was Warren Hill, 13 saves right. versus just seven for Barrett. You know, again, an advantage. You win the, you win the goaltending war, you win the faceoff war, and you win a one-goal game. That tells me that Virginia is closer than we think, even though their record has not been great to start the season. I don't know. First off, Matt Barrett, 33% in the cage. Uh, not good. I actually like Barrett a lot. I think he's a great goalie. Uh, he is a stud. Um, but where are these two teams going? I mean, we talk about the ACC and we talk about the talent in the ACC and we talk about all the pop, you know, firepower they have, but I'm not necessarily convinced. First off, I'm definitely not convinced UVA is a contender right now. Uh, and I'm not necessarily convinced Q's is either. Um, you know, this is the first big win they've had. I mean, the, the, and, and it's against UVA. And is UVA in serious danger of making the tournament? big win they haven't beaten anybody they haven't beaten anybody you know they are they are a world-class program they're one of the best programs in division one you know in the history of the sport but this year's this year's version is not a good team they're not a top 20 team they're they're 100 not and my thing is is everyone wants to talk about how you know syracuse has a balanced offense but but when has a balanced offense ever gotten syracuse a national championship Look at the gates. It wasn't really balanced. It was Paul and Gary. I mean, look at the Powells, the whole run. It was Casey. Well, how do you define balanced? You know, I, I would say that Syracuse absolutely is balanced. But not in the past. I mean, Mikey Powell ran the table. I mean, just like 
Lyle Thompson. I mean, it was it was two, three guys at max. You know, now they've got six guys scoring, but that doesn't work. It doesn't. That won't get you a national championship. Is there a guy on that team? I disagree with I, you. I mean, I'm going to go through it. Gates. You know, they had three guys. You know, the, the, the Powells that whole time. Casey, you had like three guys that were scoring over 50 points. It, the Gates, listen, they had Gate, Gate, Dumpson, Johnny, Zulberti, you know, right, but then, uh, Jimmy But you remember Egan. those guys, but they all had significantly percentage-wise, significantly less points than those top three. And that's, where, that's all I'm saying. It's not, I'm not like saying they also didn't have like, you know, guys that were scoring as well. Of course they did. But we're talking about, you know, the, the Michael Lavelle's of the world who absolutely killed it in terms of points. I mean, it was him, and then there was the rest of the team. And even JoJo Morasco, when they went to the national t- uh, championship game, JoJo Morasco and Kevin Rice, it was those two. And then there was a bunch of other guys scoring a lot of points. You've got a team right now that has six guys scoring all the points. Is there one guy on that team can actually take over a game and actually show us that, wow, you've got to stop him in order, or can you just play good team defense? You go into Notre Dame, they're going to play good team defense. They don't care what the matchups are. It's not like going into Lyle Thompson world in Albany and being like, well, no matter what we do, we need to stop Lyle. We have to do it. I, I would argue that that makes them more dangerous. You know, I hear what there's. I hear what you're saying that there's not one guy that you can give the ball to, and you know, count on a goal or a slide every single time. With that said, you look at the 14 goals that Syracuse scored. Right, you've got. Uh, you know, nine of the goals were assisted. Nine of them. Yep. And you know, Tim Barber goes three and two. Dylan Donahue two and three. Derek DeJoe three and one. Salcedo two and two. Mariano three and zero. Oh. Uh, Evans one and one. I, I I I'm not sure, and I'm not sold on Syracuse for the same reason that you're alluding to that they don't have one player that scares you. I do think that the fact that they are you know, assisting 75% of their goals, I think that makes them overall scarier because you can game plan for one guy. It's tough to game plan for six guys that all are a threat to score or feed. And, you know, that's that now, now your scheme comes into play a lot more than just, you know, one guy shutting off their best player and then they slide to him as soon as they get the ball. Yeah. You know, They've uh, also done it with against, I would say not crappy is not even a good word, but not good teams. They've, you know, they're, they're, they're assisting on 75% of the goals against not good teams. I mean, let's, let's see what they can do against a good team. And bottom line is, can UVA make it to the national tournament? Because it looks like right now they might not get an ACC win this year, just like they didn't in the regular season, just like they did it last year. I think Albany, I think Albany looks like they're a pretty good team right now. We don't know. I mean, Syracuse handled them, but Ben Williams, again, dominated that game. You know, where where's Syracuse? Where's Syracuse when they split at the X? You know, and that game is that is that, you know, Denver? Is it Maryland? Is it Brown? Is it Villanova? Is it, you know, Carolina? You know, it wasn't Carolina based on how you know Stephen Kelly did against Baptiste this past weekend down in Denver. I would have thought that that would have been a better battle. So let's see, let's see what Syracuse does when they don't have a major possession advantage due to the success of Billy Ben Williams at X. That's that's when we're going to get a better idea of who exactly Syracuse is. But good, good uh, segue on that UNC Denver. We'll go right into it since you just mentioned it. Uh, what a game again! And you called it one after another after another. 
once again, Bill Tierney pulls out another close win. <laughs> Every time. It's crazy. You know, the, the obvious stat, again, this is an overtime game. It was an unbelievable game. I was able to catch the last half of it, and it was an unbelievable game. And Denver went up, I think, 11-8 or something like that down the stretch of the game. And, and to Carolina's credit, with a lot of, you know, young players on the offensive end, you know, they – the fact that they came back and were in a position to win the game, I think they were up 12-11, you know, only to have Zach Miller hit a bomb low and away to tie it up and go into overtime. You know, Carolina, this was the best game of the year for them as well, even though it came at a loss just like Virginia's. And this bodes well for North Carolina. I think they're going to use this as a springboard, and I think that – you know, over the course of the next six weeks, they're going to get better and better, and they're going to be very, very relevant come playoff time. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, to see them, although I say it every year because I'm a, I'm a fan of their program and a fan of their coaching staff. You know, I, I do think that this is going to be coming off the Hopkins win and playing Denver, you know, right there. I, I think this is going to be a good turn for UNC. You know, I was really impressed. Obviously, Trevor Baptiste, 21 for 28 at the X is incredible. Um, you know, uh, I was, I loved the play that Matt Brown drew up for Canizero's winner in overtime. Right. It was just a great backside seal play. And, and, you know, by the time the defender who was sealed recognized that he was sealed, over. the game was over. Yep. And that was just, you know, Matt Brown, you have to say is the best offensive coordinator in, in college across Easily. right now. And, um, you know, you, you, him with Bill Tierney and the players that they've been able to attract there, they're going to be. They're gonna they're gonna be a tough team to beat. Is anybody gonna I beat them? So. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, first off, just to touch on UNC, uh, I, I agree. This is the best performance they've had. I think they still have some major holes to fill or fix. I think they still have a lot of room for improvement. But we're gonna see exactly what kind of a team they are. I mean, if you say they're as good as they are, great. Then they they should roll against UMass, Manhattan, Richmond. And Richmond's going to be a nice test before they get into Maryland, Duke, UVA, body blow, body blow, body blow, Syracuse, Notre Dame. I mean, the ACC schedule starts right up. Um, so we're going to see what kind of a team UNC really is. But in all honesty, Denver's going to win a, another national championship. They really are. It's like <laughs> They it, might. It's like, we'll see what happens against Notre, Notre Dame. You know, Notre Dame. Eighth national. But, that, but does this game this weekend really matter? AT. Does it really matter? It definitely. I think it definitely matters. In fact, I would almost argue that it may be a good or thing lose. if Notre Dame loses or, or this Denver game. loses. Either one. I actually think the loser of this game is better off. Like lose, yeah, I lose the be. game. It's okay. You know, we're gonna. The hardest thing to do, and you said, I think you said this a long time to me, a long time ago. The hardest thing to do in all of sports is to beat the same team twice in one season. I think it's it's one of the hardest things to do. When you go two and zero against the same the same team, it's very very hard to do. Um, and I think the loser of the game actually has an advantage going into uh, the national tournament because you know they're going to end up facing each other uh, most likely, and it's probably most likely in the na national championship. Uh, obviously, you know things can change, but I just don't I don't see anyone beating Denver. And we're going to see Denver win it again. Bill Tierney in his eighth. I can't believe he's going to win eight national championships. <laughs> well, I certainly, I certainly would bet on Denver to do it. I, I don't. I mean, I'm not going to give it to him yet. But if I had oh to bet, God, I would I'm bet the heavy Denver money win. on Denver right now. Princeton, Princeton, <laughs> Hopkins. Uh, this one, you know, it's on our rundown, but I'm not really sure how shocking this was. I picked 
verbally. Well, it's not a shocker round. Yeah. It's a speed round. <laughs> I know. I, uh, you know, Zach Courier is the heart of Princeton. And, and when you take him away from the equation, I mean, they lock in with their heads down. Who's going to face off for us? Who's going to get the tough ground ball? Who's going to make the stop in the transition? Who's going to run between the lines? I mean, if you don't have a guy like Zach Courier, that game, I mean, might as well forfeited the game. Um, so, But on the other half, it was good to see Johns Hopkins actually, you know, do the damage that they were supposed to do during that game. I mean, in order for them to come back and actually say, hey, listen, we're still legit here. Uh, I still have major questions about Hopkins. I don't think, I, I mean, same thing with Loyola. We'll get to them in a, in a few minutes. But, I mean, I still have major questions for Hopkins. What did you think of this one? Listen, the, I, I called it last week. I said Hopkins could. When Hopkins has their back against the walls, uh, back back against the wall, you know, Coach Petromala and his staff seem to always show up, uh, at least in, in in my opinion. And they did that here. You know, to, to come back and win 17-7, to seven, you know, listen, Hopkins is missing their two best midfielders. So it's not but like they're not coming you know, back, they came into this either. game. You know what I'm back. saying? They're out for the year. No, they're not. And, and Zach, listen, I agree with you 100%. Zach Courier is, you know, uh, the heart and soul of Princeton's team. But it wouldn't have made a difference in this game. They lost by 10 goals, Ryan. And, you know, I don't think that Zach Courier wins a majority no, of the faceoffs against Mataraz. I think he does. I think he does better than, you know, 30%. But I still don't think he wins over 50%. Zach Courier is a competitor, an unbelievable ground ball guy, you know, a warrior. But he's not a technician at the X. Mataraz is a technician at the X. And he still would have won over 50% of the game. Uh, of 50% of the face-offs. I think the only bright spot that you can really look at is, is Tyler Blaisdell with 20 saves in this game and still let up 17 goals. Princeton, Princeton's in trouble. I mean, uh, you know, you're looking at the Ivy League, and and I don't uh, – they're in trouble. I don't think if, – if they don't if they don't fix some things, I think they're going to have a tough time making the Ivy League tournament this year based on, you know, the performance the first two weeks. Uh, and I would love to see Batesy turn it around, and 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 wouldn't be surprised if if they're able to turn it around. But but they need to turn it around um, because this was not a good. Yeah. Uh, Brown, UMass. I don't. I really, actually, this one I have no clue why it's in the rundown. I think you just want to talk about your alma mater. I do. I, <laughs> this is uh, so um, you know, and I think you wanted to shove it in my face because I took UMass in the picks. Um, this week covering the three and a half goal spread. So, what did you think? Added value. That was an added value. Yeah. <laughs> what did you, think? You, you know, Brown Brown got up eleven to one, I believe, before they started to sub freely. You know, Brown is Brown's one of the most complete teams in Division One lacrosse. They've got the best goaltender in the Ivy League and one of the very best goaltenders in the country in Kelly. They've got. One of the best face-off guys at the X in Will Garral. And I believe, you know, one of the most dangerous face-off groups when you take their wing play with Alec Tullett and Larkin Kemp, you know, up on the wings. Uh, you know, they were 18 for 25 against UMass. We know all about Dylan Malloy and the Brown offense. You know, they like to run with scissors while playing with matches by the pool offensively. And when you win, again, 80% of the faceoffs, whatever the number is, that becomes a super scary team to play. 
You know, the one stat that really sticks out about Brown is they were 0 for 8 on man up. You know, it's appearing like the best strategy to stop Brown's offense is to foul them as fast as possible and give them a man up opportunity. That's your best chance of stopping Brown, which is crazy. That's like, you know, shooting stick side high on Doc Doherty. He, he baits you into it, and you do it, and then he's laughing before he even catches the ball. It's just so hard to to deal with this Brown team. They are a very, very complete team, and I think even though with Harvard's win, which we'll touch on in a little bit, I still think that Brown and Yale are the two best teams in the Ivy League, um, although that Brown-Harvard game is coming up in two weeks, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But Brown, I was very, very impressed with Brown, and I don't think this is indicative you know, of how – uh, good UMass is. I think UMass has shown, you know, with a great win over Ohio State, and, and they're certainly always a very, very tough team, always a well-coached team. But Brown, I think, beat them in, in all four areas of the game. Yeah. So that was my view. What do you think? I, I, uh, I'm moving on. <laughs> Eleven to one. Eleven to one. Smart. Well, you hit that nail me... right on the side with that call. We know about a bent nail. <laughs> Uh, Eleven to one. I mean, I I totally blew it, but uh, Brown is a complete team. I uh, did not call Brown in the Final Four, but I did say that Harvard and Yale had the tools. Uh, did not see uh, Brown coming up. Lars and his uh, staff did an unbelievable job. You know, they 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 they've recruited really really well. They have the team, you know, completely unified. Uh, they are. The, this is the best Brown team. This is the best Brown team since. 1994, when David Evans was a sophomore, first-team All-American as a sophomore, was shooting the ball about 130 miles an hour, you know, with old stick technology. Um, I didn't know anybody could shoot that fast with a PL-66 on a wood shaft, but he found a way to do it. Albany Cornell. I'm getting off Brown. Jeez. Uh, Albany Cornell. Uh, Let's face it. Albany needed something to make up for the fact that they went Five for twenty-four at the face-off X. By the way, Massimilian for Cornell is legit, and he's going to give the Ivy League teams a fit. O for four, Albany was O for four in EMO, and twenty-one for twenty-six in the clearing game. And what was that difference? It was one hundred percent Blaze Reardon coming in hot, seventy percent, eighteen saves. Uh, Connor Field getting a little loose with four goals too. Uh, Seth Oaks three goals. Uh, what did you think? I think Scott Mark does an awesome job. There's a tough team. Albany's a tough team to play against. You know, like you said, you know, they go five for 24 at the X, and I agree 100%. Don Massimilian is, is the, really appears like the lone bright spot for Cornell right now. Their offense is just not getting it done, but Dom is definitely getting it done, you know, and I think that they better, they better make some adjustments. I don't, you know, I, I didn't see the game, so I don't know. But I think that Albany is a scary team to, you know, to to give up that many possessions and still win the game. Again, it's, you know, you look at they won the goaltending battle, which offsets the faceoff loss. I think what we're seeing is Albany and Stony Brook are clearly on a collision course here for the AQ out of the Am East. Yes. That's going to be a game I'm interested in watching for sure. That, that like a goal bleeding a thong, it should be a 40-goal game, that one. Um, you wonder if Cornell starts to change up their schedule in the future in the beginning of the year. Penn State, Hobart, Albany, Virginia. I go to Virginia this week. You wonder if Cornell is thinking to themselves right now, like, wow, maybe, maybe, maybe we should rethink that uh, in the future.
Archer. Um, and I only mention that just because it is a late start. They do get an earlier, uh, you know, game nowadays. You know, they start a week earlier than they used to. But you wonder if uh, that's that's too hot of a start for a team like that, where you are up in the cold. There is a lot of snow. You know, the practices aren't as valued as they would be, say, later in the year. Cornell will get it together. There's no question. They'll get it together. They're going to come in hot during the Ivy League tournament or, excuse me, the Ivy League regular season games, as will all of the Ivy League teams. It's it's always a cutthroat league to be in. But you wonder if that's something that they're on the back of their mind, that, you know, this isn't this isn't set up for us to succeed. Listen, it didn't affect them when Rod Purnell was in uniform. <laughs> nothing, nothing affected them. Then it worked out great. Superman was in you know, life. I just think that they are, you know, I, I think that this is – uh, a little bit of a transition year. I know they got some awesome recruits coming in next year, and Cornell will be back. Um, you know, whether or not they can get it together to become a factor in the Ivy League in April, you know, I don't know. I, I hope for, for Kermie and Milliman that they can do that. You know, that's a, it's a great coaching staff, and, and I'd love to see them, you know, uh, come back and, 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 you know, play a role in the outcome of the Ivy League. I just, uh, I don't think that they're going to be able to do it. I, th- I think that, I think the three Ivy League teams are too tough in Yale, Brown, and Harvard. And I think that Penn is, uh, they're playing a lot of young guys. And I think that they seem to be ahead of Cornell at this point. But Cornell will be back. And if they don't, if they're not back this year, they're going to be back next year. And they're, right. they're uh, you know, one of the best programs, again, in, in, the, in the history of the sport. And while it is a down year so far, um, I'm I'm not worried about them long term. Maybe not this year, but but they're going to. Well, be they back. continue to keep winning faceoffs. Luckily, they have that figured out, so they can actually get their offense figured out. I mean, that's the best thing you can hope for for Cornell at this point. Notre Dame, Maryland, out in California. Uh, I mean, let's face it, both de- defenses living up to expectations here. You know, just as everyone wants to talk about Notre Dame's defense, Maryland's defense was just as good. Uh, I picked Maryland to, to, to cover in this game, and I actually thought that they would win the game. You know, you looked at uh, Notre Dame obviously has one of the best defenses and are one of the very best teams. In the I think they're a top-two team. I think it's them and Denver, you know, that are, are the best two teams out there. And this, this win sort of validates it to me a little bit more. The one stat that shocked me is I couldn't believe – that Notre Dame actually won over 50% of the faceoffs. Hensington was just murdering people at the X, and I thought that that would be an area where Maryland could continue to dominate, and if they if they could, I thought that they would be in a position to win a low-scoring game. And, you know, it was a low-scoring game. I know the final was 9-4, but it was a, you know, a one- or two-goal game, you know, all the way until I think Maryland tried to overextend at the end to try to get the ball back, but... I was shocked that Notre Dame was able to compete at the X, not shocked at all by the defensive battle. You know, you got two of the very best defensive coaches and, 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 and personnel out there. Uh, the big question for me is, will Maryland ever decide to run on offense? Right. They have the talent to oh do God, so. You know, they've, 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 they've been able to recruit some of the very best players in the country, yep. yet they, they seem to play a style of play that suggests that they, you know, don't have the depth and don't have the offensive talent. You know, the way that they play was the way that Princeton played when, you know, Tierney put them on the map in the early 90s where they would slow it way down and try to win a a one-goal game. And 
You got the best players. You don't need to play that way. You, you, you still have one of the best defenses in the country, even if you decide to run more. I mean, you know, I just, I, I, it, it's, it's, it, at some point, they're going to have to open it up if they want to bring a national title back to College Park. They, they're going to have to do it. It just seems like they, they are, yeah, it's painful. Henry West and Rotans haven't scored yet this year. Like, that's, and, and here's the deal. Just like, how, how does Maryland not rob Pinnell the ball with Rambo every time? Get that kid the ball 100%. Well, Rob, Rambo isn't as good as no, Rob Pinnell. Not. Rambo is Rambo's a very good player, but he's not. Rob Pinnell is arguably, you know, a top three attackman of all time. You know, his ability to put the ball on a stick and literally score or get an assist pretty much every time he dodged, it seemed like, you know, you can't compare that to Matt Rambo. Matt Rambo is a goal scorer. You know, Matt Rambo is not so much of a playmaker. You know, does he... What's that? He can play multiple facets of the game. The thing is, is we say, well, he's not as good of a player, but he's playing at Maryland. Imagine if he went back to Cornell and they got Rambo. You'd see the ball on his stick every single time. He would double the output of, of goals if he was at Albany, if he was at Syracuse. And we'd be talking about how Matt Rambo is Matt Rambo that we all knew out of high school. He's the same player. You should see him play in the summer league. And I know that's so much different. I get it. It's, 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 it's freelance lacrosse. But the kid just takes over games, and he can do it. He can do it at the Division One level. But I think he's – listen, Brian, I think, I think he's a very good player. Don't get me wrong. But he doesn't compare – he's not a top three attackman no, 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 of no, all not, time. Not, not, you know, and Rob Pinnell has an absolute argument for that. You know, I, yeah, Matt, Matt Rambo's not a first-team All-American. That's, that's my right? point. And my point is, is that he doesn't compare to Rob Pinnell. What I'm saying is, is why don't they give him the ball every single time in transition coming down? Let him have the first 10 seconds of every single possession. Let him do his thing in the first 10 seconds, and then they can settle into their offense. But until then, I mean, he's not going to generate nearly as many goals as Rob Pinnell ever did to even prove that he's in the, even the top, you know, 20. He doesn't make his teammates better the way that Rob Pinnell's style of play did. But again, we don't know that. Yeah, that that's the difference. He's, Rob, Matt Rambo is a goal scorer. Rob Pinnell was a playmaker. Rob Pinnell could go 6-1 and one as easily as he could go 1-6. and six. And Rambo doesn't have that element to his game yet or hasn't proven it yet, at least in my opinion. You know, he's a great player. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think that you can, you know, turn over the team to him the way that Cornell, you know, could to Rob Pinnell or Duke could to, uh, you know, uh, Matt Danowski. It's, he's, he's not on that level yet. Will he get there? He might prove if, if they decide to open it up. He could very well prove me wrong and prove you right. But they got to open it up for us to find out because their current pace of play is is not allowing us to find out, you know, truly what kind of player Matt Rambo is as a Division One attack. A couple other points I kind of wanted to bring up. Uh, both teams in this game, if you want to see how team defense is played, you got to see Maryland play Denver. I mean, it's really incredible. Both teams do an incredible job of slide recovery off the initial dive. That's not really that unusual. Uh, for any offense, uh, any defensive team. But then holding them up on the backside is what they're incredibly good at. They do a great job of making sure they can buy time for their, def their off-ball defenders to either get in position to help out 
or close the gap when they move the ball one more, and therefore they just push the offense back out, which is awesome. Kevin Connery's done have. a great job, and certainly Bill Tierney's Bill Tierney. You know, I think you also are looking at, you know, a couple of other teams in that group with Towson, Yale, Notre Dame. You know, those are those are, you know, those are the best defensive teams in the country. And but that's it. That's that's a great great point that you make. But I think that that comes down to coaching. They they have their guys well versed, and uh, exactly how to uh, manage the best offense. Last piece I want to bring up: if you're going to attack Notre Dame or Maryland, you have to do it east west. This whole north-south, and Denver does a great job of actually going north-south, bending back in. And basically, the difference between going north-south in your dodges is you get the ball through X, but you actually have to carry and get it back through to the backside. But if you go east-west, that one pass gets you to east-west, gets you to the backside of the offense or to the defense. That's going to help you a lot more. A lot of these teams are going north-south, north-south, north-south. And basically, Denver, uh, excuse me, uh, Notre Dame and, and both Maryland, they sit dead in that off-ball you know, you know, zone. Basically, that's what they're doing in their defense. And they're just pushing out, and they're pushing themselves out, and they're forcing the backside of the offense to catch the ball a lot further than they normally would. But if you end up going east-west across the game, going from the wings, that one off the dodge, you get it through to X, you get it to the backside, you're already there. And that puts a lot of pressure on both Maryland and Notre Dame's defense when you stay dead to action off ball in that tight zone where you're actually now catching it in a shooting position at 10 yards as opposed to catching it at 13, trying to quick dodge, and again, getting back to the hole while they're really good at holding you up, get buying time for your off ball defenders to get back into their positions to either help out or close the gap on their guys. So I see a lot of teams going north-south, north-south, but every time I've seen a team go east-west on these two teams, they've had more difficulty. Listen, are they still good at defense? Hell yes. And they're going to continue to stop you. But in general, you know, the same action. Denver does a great job, again, bending back in to get east-west across, throwing the through pass. I, I think that that's a better way to attack it. Um, you know, moving on to the last game out of this rundown, Yale Bryant. Uh, what were your thoughts there? Not surprised at all by Yale's W. We both called Yale to cover this game. Uh, you know, they're they're a really really scary team as well. I think Quint had them rated ranked three this week, and I I yeah, I'm I on board with that. that. I mean, yeah. they 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 do not beat themselves. Uh, I wouldn't. I'm not positive they. You know, I would have predicted they won by ten goals. I mean, this was just a beatdown, but. You know, I'm not surprised by the W. Michael Quinn, he's a first-team All-American. He's got to be in the conversation for Defensive Player of the Year, even with Matt Landis and these other guys that are out there. You know, he he's, he's just an unbelievably uh, good player. You know, I said it before, Towson, Yale, Notre Dame, I think, are the, are the best defensive coached teams in college across. And... You know, the, the, the one stat that steps out, Yale won 15 out of 21 faceoffs against Bryant. Bryant's used to winning that statistic. They needed, they needed to win 15 out of 21 for them to have an opportunity, and they didn't, and they got close. Reminds me, March 13th, uh, Set Your DVRs, Fantastic Lies airs that 30 for 30 on the Duke scandal uh, reminds me because, of course, Pressler uh, on ESPN. So set your DVRs. We're going to be right back with the Weekly Shockers. Uh, maximize your company.
Welcome back to the show again. Weekly Shockers. Uh, we've got a few of them this week. Uh, first one on the docket, Towson over Loyola. How shocked really were you, AT, on this one? I thought, I thought that, uh, you know, I thought Towson would cover, but I thought Loyola would win the game. You know, I hadn't realized until I, you know, read the write-up that Loyola had won eight straight games. So this was a mild upset. You know, it validates that Towson is no longer sneaking up on anyone. You know, Tyler White, one of the best goalies in the country, 16 saves versus just seven for Grant Lamones. Uh, you know, you got two very good teams that played a very tight game, and I think we're going to see that both of these teams will ultimately represent their conferences with the AQs in the national tournament in May. So uh, it was a mild upset to me. Um, but again, we said last week when we were going over the rankings that we thought Towson you know, was not ranked as high as they deserve to be, right. and they proved us right. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I have questions about Loyola. You know, you look at like what the final four could be. I don't see Loyola in there. I'm not so sure if Loyola is in the quarterfinals going trying to get into the semifinals. Um, I, 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 this one did not shock me. However, Towson, on the other half, I could I could see them in a Final Four. Um, I could too. I, I could really see them in the Final Four. Uh, this was a win that absolutely, for me, validates. I mean, they've been playing consistently to do it in a midweek game uh, at Loyola uh, in Ridley Stadium. Uh, that, that was impressive for me. Uh, OSU over Marquette. To me, this wasn't shocking at all. I picked OSU not only to cover, I picked them to win straight up, to go into Columbus. I, I just don't understand where Marquette gets these rankings. I mean, you look at the articles right now, and they're all like, well, you know, that might have been their only time to, to win a top, to, you know, beat a top 20 team. It's like, well, then why did you have them 17th overall? Like, why, where, is this, where is this coming from? It just, you look at, you know, Ohio State, and you look at Marquette, the obvious win to me, and I guess maybe it's just me, the obvious win is Ohio State there, especially at home. Now, in terms of Ohio State, you know, we're going to see what they're made up of. They're playing a little inconsistent at the beginning of the year, but they've got Hofstra, Denver, Towson, Notre Dame. Then they go into the Big Ten. We're really going to find out how good Ohio State is and if they can actually keep um, this momentum going by a big win. Um, I guess it's a big win. I, I bet you if you ask Nick Myers, you can be like, Nick, should you have won this game? And he's going to be like, if I had lost that game, I'd have been, I'd lose my mind. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's not that's not shocking to me. What do you think? I, I I picked Marquette to win, and of course I was wrong. <laughs> um, you know, I but but again I, I'm with you. It's it's not that much of an upset. I just you know the fact that Marquette had been playing so well, and Ohio State you know really hadn't been playing very well. But I guess true to typical fashion, as soon as you think you know teams, you don't. And this was a great win by Ohio State. They needed to win the game. They did. You know, 16 saves for New Canaan High School graduate Tom Carey. Again, just seven for Jimmy Danaher. Same numbers as the Towson Loyola goalies. That's that that speaks to you know the four goal difference. Listen, Marquette's got one of the best defenses out there, but they only had one assisted goal. They got to get their offense together. If they don't, they're just going to have a tough time consistently beating teams that they probably feel they should win. I I, I bet you if you ask Joe Amplo, he wouldn't have considered them the favorite in this Correct. game. Uh, you know, so particularly with the game played at Ohio State. So I'm with you. This isn't really an upset to me. Um, you look at Ohio State's schedule coming up, as you just alluded to, they go to Hofstra, 
They play Towson at home. They play the Grim Reapers out at Denver. They play Notre Dame at home. You know, those are four games, and they're, you know, Five and one right now. I, I think we're going to look up and see Ohio State is five and five playing Penn State at home for, you know, for their lives right. in the beginning of April. And then they go to Hopkins, Michigan at home, to Maryland, and Rutgers. You know, they're they they've got a, just a brutal oh schedule during the last half of the season. So we're going to find out a lot about Ohio State. Um, you know, over the next six to eight weeks. Uh, moving on here, RD, we got Penn. Over Penn State. Yeah, TJ, TJ, TJ Sanders, three goals. Will Schreiner, nine saves, 45%. I, you know, I picked Penn. Um, I, I just, I'm not really sure where Penn State is. I, you know, I thought this who was. Who are they? Right, who are they? And, you know, they go up to Cornell and they beat Cornell. But now we're wondering who, who's Cornell? Who the hell's Cornell right now? Um, so just when you thought you had, you know, you had them figured out. You really don't. I mean, Grant DeMent, here's the thing. You got to stop Grant DeMent from distributing in that offense. He only had one goal, zero assists. And there, there is your offense for Penn State. It dies, even though TJ Sanders has three goals. And, and they, ha- they have major, major issues in the cage. Major issues in the cage, 45%. I mean, again, they haven't cracked 50% all year. Uh, just really, I mean, that's a dangerous, dangerous combo, uh, being able to shut down your you know, your freshman playmaker um, and, you know, not being able to save the ball on the other end. Well, first of all, th- this was a huge uh, W by Penn. This game was not close. I mean, it, it, the game, the score was 11-7. This was 9-2 at one right. point. 7-1 Penn led. Right. So this wasn't like this was a, a close game. It wasn't. Penn, Penn blew their doors off. Right. Um, you know, Penn, and Penn's playing a lot of freshmen. That staff, Mike Murphy, uh, and, and his guys have done a great job of of recruiting, and they've done a great job of recruiting in the Philadelphia area in particular, which I think is arguably the the, the, the best high school across in the country. And they're taking advantage of where they are geographically. This was a, a great win over a program that they probably fight for a third of their recruits against. Uh, not all of them, but but probably three guys a year they probably fight with Penn State for. Um, you know, and 15 saves for Reed Junkin starting, right? What a, what a performance, you know, that off, helps offset a seven for 22 performance at the X. They're going to have to get their face off group together. If they're going to expect to compete against Brown and against Yale, um, you know, they're, they're going to have to, they're going to have to find some answers there, but I was very impressed by Penn. You know, to me, this, this, this puts them firmly you know, in the position number four in the Ivy League, which is where you want to be. Obviously, the top four teams make the end of the year Ivy League tournament. So we still got a lot of season left. We haven't even started the Ivy League games yet, but but this was a great win by Penn. Uh, Georgetown over Hofstra. Now, this is uh, this is an interesting game to talk about because we're going to talk about Georgetown over Hofstra, but you know, we're going to talk about Georgetown again after this. Um, to me, this is a tale of two halves. Georgetown outscores Hofstra 7-2 to in the second half. Nick Morocco, Massachusetts native, 15 saves, 71% in the cage. Hofstra turning the ball over a little bit too much in this one, but um, it looks and it seems I wasn't able to catch a game, but Georgetown defense shutting down Vernon Linares. Very well done. Scoreless for Linares. Concannon, 
Prahasra is still the real deal in net, though. Uh, he's he's a bright spot there in this one, 56%. But uh, what did you think in this one? You know, I think that you pegged it. I mean, I, it, it, it's a disappointing letdown by Hofstra. I actually said I thought Georgetown would not only cover, I thought Georgetown would win outright. Kevin Warren is too good of a coach for him not to get his team, you know, ready to play. Hofstra was off to a great start beating you know, Princeton and, and North Carolina, um, you know, they had lost to Mount St. Mary's, which we had, which we're going to talk about next. But I just I felt that Georgetown was going to come back and play their best game of the year. They've got some some good players. And, you know, where was Sam Harris again? You know, it's shocking. You know, he's been I think he's one of the best attackmen in the country. And for him to have zero goals and just three shots. That's that's the difference in the game. Um, right. You got to you got to Kevin you got to credit Kevin Warren and his staff for putting together a game plan and getting his guys to come and on game day show up and play their best game of the year against a very hot Hofstra team. Great win for Georgetown. Next one, <laughs> great loss for Georgetown. Mount St. Mary's over Georgetown. Just when you compliment Georgetown, here they go, losing to Mount St. Mary's. You know what? I I think that uh, St. Mount St. Mary's isn't getting enough credit. You know, right. Mount St. Mary's, they only lost to Towson 9-5. And they had a great week. You know, they beat, obviously, this game, Georgetown, on, on Tuesday or Wednesday. I can't remember which day it was. And then came back and beat Furman on Saturday. You know, they in this game, it was a tie game. They scored, you know, four goals in the last five minutes of the game and ended up, you know, winning, I think, 11-8 was the final. It's just great to see uh, – Timmy Mack and T, you know, the former Manhattan coach, did an unbelievable job building that program. And, you know, it's so great to see him valued as a coach. You know, I think you ask anyone in the sport that knows the sport, and they're going to say that Tim McEntee knows the game as well as anyone does. Uh, You know, he's tough, he's brash, you know, but the players that, you know, hear the message and don't get wrapped up in its packaging – are the ones that, uh, you know, will become much better players and will meet and and exceed their potential as players because the guy just flat out knows the sport and he is uh, he's going to tell you what you need to hear. He's never going to tell you what you want to hear. Never. Right. right. So true. Mark Hajnowski, I apologize if I'm crushing your name right now. Hajnowski, 5-1. Frankie McCarthy, 13 saves for 65%. That's a recipe, and, and a lot of those goals for Mark were in the last, in the fourth quarter. Um, and here's the crazy fact of the day. You ready for this, A.T.? The Mount is 2-2 two and two against the Hoyas in the last four years, and they lead the all-time series against the Hoyas 17-6. That is crazy fact of the day. Last game, but we're actually going to dovetail this because, you know, this pre-production meeting, we didn't have this from last night, obviously. Uh, but Harvard over Duke, and we'll combine that kind of with Richmond over Duke last night. Uh, what did you think, A.T.? Harvard kicked their ass. I mean, Harvard, <laughs> Harvard, out. The game was 3-3, and then I got in. I, I didn't get to see the first quarter, but I, I got to see the last three quarters of it. Harvard was in total control of the game. I mean, Total they had Duke's defense on their heels. It seemed like every time, you know, I turned my head, Harvard scored another goal. You know, Devin Dwyer, he's, he's Devin Dwyer, 
is a first-team All-American as of, you know, through yeah. four games or five games, however many he's played. He's playing great, and he's got a great, uh, you know, a, a, a great guy to work with in Morgan Cheek. I think we're starting to see the impact of Ben DeLuca on the culture of this program. You know, for them to pull out three one-goal overtime games, wins, and then go and beat Duke at Hofstra, you know, Woj has done a great job. He's the head coach, but I think we're starting to see, you know, the impact that Ben DeLuca is having on this program, and I think it's only going to become more and more evident as the season goes on. And I think that that makes Harvard a very scary team to have on the schedule. Uh, you know, clearly Harvard, Yale, Brown have have separated themselves in the Ivy League, in my opinion, followed by Penn. But I was very impressed by Harvard playing their best best game, fourth game of the year. Um, I, I would have thought that Duke, I picked Duke. I thought Duke would, would win. I thought that this would be a wake up call for Harvard, but they stay they stuck it to me and they stuck it to everybody else. What a win for, for Chris Wojcik and his staff and the players in the program. Awesome yeah. job. Robert Shaw, Forno again. Yeah. Um, you know, imagine also if Harvard didn't go over three in the man up. Uh, I mean, Duke is just struggling to find an identity right now. Um, they really are. I mean, two losses in a row. You're starting to think, you know, well, you know, like Cornell, do they schedule the games that they do early season? Do you think Duke ever schedules four games in a row like they just did this past week? I mean, what was it, four games in 10 days? Uh, I don't think they do that ever again. Um, I think it's one, I thought I mentioned this in Twitter. I thought it was pretty disrespectful that they do that. Uh, especially when they have to turn it around, uh, going from, you know, Hashra and then literally Monday you play at your house, uh, against, you know, a, a legitimate squad in Richmond, but they're throwing the ball all around the field. You know, I, I remember Donowski, he talked to Eamon, uh, on his podcast and he talked about how last year he felt like the seniors on the team. Uh, didn't really want to compete with the prior seniors. Like, there's one thing that, like, you compete amongst yourselves. And I thought this was kind of an interesting point. There's one thing if you want to compete against yourselves and compete as a team, but there's also another thing to be said for competing against prior, like, years and being like, that was a senior class that won a national championship. I'm going to do better than that. I'm, I'm going to beat them. We're going to do better than they are. And he felt like... And when John was talking, he said he felt like the seniors last year didn't feel that way. He felt like, for whatever reason, they just weren't competitive in that nature, and they end up losing Ohio State in the first round. And my thought are my thoughts, immediate thoughts were, you think a coach, you know, subconsciously is actually talking about his current team when he looks back in the past to talk about a past team. And I feel like the same situation is happening right now with Duke right now is that. You know, Duke walks on the field and they just feel like, oh, we're going to win this game. This is easy. This is a game we're going to win. And boom, they get slapped in the face by Harvard. Like, not even, I mean, slapped in the face by Harvard. And then they go home and they're like, ah, oh, this will be a great break. I mean, this will be a nice game for us to win to get back on track. And boom, not only does Harvard slap them in the face, Richmond punches them in the mouth. And it's increasingly clear to me that Duke doesn't have an attack squad that can carry them through games. They're stopping Deemer Clive. They're stopping Miles Jones. And you can score three goals. Gutterding can score three goals. But it's not a, an attack unit that can take over games and win games for long periods of time in the season. I just don't see it. And it scares me to think that Duke, you know, going to the ACC, you know, I, I just don't see what kind of a team they are. 
And like watching like Miles Jones out there, I felt like, felt like to be honest, I felt like they looked tired. They looked really tired. A lot of travel, you know, a lot of pressure on these guys. You know, Miles Jones getting eaten alive on Twitter. Ah, he's overrated, blah, blah, blah. He's a six foot, you know, goon. I mean, listen, he's one of the best players in the country, but they look tired. And I'm curious if this will ever be scheduled the same way in the future. But look to this week, you know, as a week where they can recover, you think, right? I, 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 don't, I, I don't think uh, – I disagree with you. I think that Donowski uh, is clearly one of the very best coaches in the history of the sport, and he is outspoken about why they schedule these games, you know, and it's in preparation for May. And <laughs> – He's done pretty well in May. And I'm not worried about this team. They're going to figure it out. They have enough games on their schedule to get an at-large berth. And while this was certainly a shocking loss, I think that Dan Shimani doesn't get enough credit for, you know, coaching his team to a win. This was a one-goal game, back-and-forth RD, all game long, and Richmond ended up gutting it out in the end. And I'm not disagreeing with you and that Duke looks sort of tired. You would think that Duke, the ACC program with, you know, the major depth advantage would be the one that would have the legs down the stretch of this game and they would find a way to pull it out. But credit the Richmond players, credit Dan Shamati and his staff. You know, I'm sure that when the Richmond Spiders got their schedule, this was a game that was circled. Shamati's a Duke grad. You know he wanted to have a good performance against this team. I don't think that the Duke players circled the Richmond game as a game that they were fired up for and thinking about for the last, you know, uh, two months. And so, you know, it, this is certainly an upset, and it's a great win for Richmond, but I don't think you're going to see Duke change their strategy in the way that they schedule in the future. I think it's 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 the formula is a proven success, and while periodically they lose some games in the earlier part of the season that, that shock us um, – you know, the important thing is where are they in May? And I think that Duke is going to be a team that's relevant in May, just like North Carolina is. They just have too many good players, and they have too much of a tradition of success. And these seniors will figure it out, and these players, you know, will get it done. And when it comes time for the much-needed win, they're going to get it. And, um, you know, I, I just uh, – it's but but right now – they're, they got to find themselves. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I look at the past times and I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, they were one and whatever. They had bad starts, but they had Ned Karate at attack. They had Jordan Wolf at attack. These are different. This is the last two years have been different teams. They were 16 to 25 clearing. That's a team for Duke. That's a team that is mentally not focused. That's a team that's tired. That's a team that who cares? Like, bottom line is you might, might, want, might want to prepare for May, but you got to get there. Last year, they didn't get there. Will they get there this year? The ACC is not going to guarantee you this year, specifically this year. I mean, in the future, they're not going to guarantee you you're going to get to the tournament this year. Um, and so for me, it's just, I don't, I don't know. And, and I have faith in John Donoski. I mean, God, the guy's one of the best coaches ever. But I just see this as... You know, unless you have the Ned Crotties and, and Jordan Wolves of the world leading your team, you know, you certainly well, you got Miles Jones. You got one of the best midfielders, you know, that's ever played college across. You know, his he is a complete player. You know, at the same time, you know, each offense has to find an identity. Right. 
And, you know, when the identity is around a midfielder rather than an attackman, that can create some inconsistencies. And, you know, but but make no mistake about it, Miles Jones is, you know, he's he's the real deal. He's he's and he's a lot different than he was when he was a freshman. Whenever he came back as a sophomore and was able to split to his right or to his left and not only shoot on the run from 15 yards and overpower goalies, but also feed, you know, to the inside. And, and he, he's, he really is the real deal. But they've got to find a way to complement his game. And I also think that they need, you know, a quarterback on offense, like you said, on the attack, that's going to be able to, you know, create some consistency when Miles Jones, you know, is not on the field. And um, I, I think they will, but it remains to be seen. So we'll see. Yeah, my only suggestion is get the ball to Dima class. But I think that is their answer. I think they're relying too much. Miles Jones is trying too much. Uh, he thinks that he can still do the things he did last year, threading the needle, just like you said. Uh, and he was, and he was doing it. Now he's throwing the ball, uh, you know, he's turning the ball over a little bit too much. But I think Dima class is the guy they need to really rely on. Get him the ball, let him quarterback this offense, and take some of that pressure off of Miles. And it'll open. Be up. interesting to see if they initiated more at X, right? And then they did the redodges with Miles Jones and redodges with Demir Class right. up top. Right. You know where they are attacking a defender with a defense that's recovering. You know, to them upfield, I think they could get greater depth in their dodges, and then I think it's lights out. I agree. Uh, that's it for these shockers for this segment. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. We're going to finish off the podcast with this week's week number four, players and coaches of the week. AT, who was your player of the week? My player of the week was Devin Dwyer from Harvard. Six points in an upset of Duke at Hofstra. He's got 25 points in four games. Again, I said it before, and I firmly believe it. He's a first-team All-American candidate. And I can't remember the last time Harvard had a first-team All-American. Who was it? When was it? I, I can't remember. Right. Probably should have been Mickey Cavoti back in 91. Mickey. Long Mickey. time ago, Mick. Mickey. Uh, but uh, Devin Dwyer is my player of the week. Love it. My player of the week. And I, I don't necessarily like giving players of the week to people that, uh, you know, are, are definitely going to be first team All-Americans in terms of guys that we already know because they've already proved it. Uh, but Trevor Baptiste, 21 to 28, and an OT win against UNC. I mean, he's the guy. And he's the reason, on top of their patient offense, but he's the reason why uh, Bill Cheney is going to win his eighth national championship. Uh, I mean, he is incredible. And I just don't see, again, I don't see anyone beating uh, Denver this year in a large part due to Mr. Baptiste, Trevor Baptiste, my player of the week. AT, who is your coach of the week? Uh, I am going back to the middle of the week. Mount St. Mary's <laughs> win over Georgetown. Coach of the week, Tom Gravanti, and my nice. boy T Mac getting it done. Um, as you said, uh, they're two and two against Georgetown. This is just a huge, huge win for Mount St. Mary's. 
They beat Georgetown in the middle of the week and came back to beat uh, a well-coached Furman team. So Tom Gravante, Coach of the Week. I love it. My Coach of the Week, Sean Natalin and his staff, Anthony Gallardi. 10-8 win over Loyola, cementing themselves as a top 10. Absolutely. Like stamping themselves in there. Uh, breaking their eight-game win streak or Loyola's eight-game win streak in eight years on the road. Um, there's no question that Sean Nadalin has done incredible things over the last few years since taking over uh, the reins from Tony Seaman uh, in Maryland, uh, in Baltimore. So uh, congrats, Sean Nadalin. Huge hardware, my coach of the week. Uh, we're going to finish off the show here. Uh, new segment uh, called Hashtag Ask Towers. Uh, this might become my favorite part of the uh, show. We've got three questions for you, AT. You were not prepped for these, so this is what could be fun. Could get could get really weird. But the first one from Bersconi at Bersconi Rich, uh, Rich Bersconi, Bernasconi. Sorry if I'm uh, pronouncing that wrong. As an all-time great face-off man, what are your thoughts on Moto Grip, and should it be outlawed? Uh, it absolutely should not be outlawed. Uh, how you grip the stick is, you know, the, they cleaned up the face-off in a big, big way in the last year or two. When they decided to get the sticks even, throat to neck, throat to neck, before the ball was placed in there, they're assuring a fair face-off setup free whistle every time. You know, and then they put the ball down, which is great. Um, so the the way you grip the stick is 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 not in play. You know, the fact that they were made this such a big deal out of this, you know, three four years ago, was was simply a reflection that the guys that are are discussing the rules have never faced off. They they right. don't understand. You know, most of the guys out there are moto grip guys now. I think that's a reflection upon the best teachers of it, you know, Greg Gremlian, um, uh, Matt Schaumburg, uh, you know, various other guys out there, you know, have had a lot of success, you know, that way. And I think that's why you see so many guys doing it. Um, but absolutely, the moto grip should not be outlawed. I think it's great for the sport. I, I love, uh, you know, anybody that's getting creative to to become successful. So... Great. Uh, that was AT's agent calling on the phone, uh, if you guys are wondering. Uh, next question. At Mike J. Brand, Michael Brand. Hashtag Ask Towers. Have you ever worn fake buck teeth to the convention in an Ivy lacrosse meeting? Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Explain. And, um, <laughs> well, we had these things called Dr. Bucks. That's Dr. Period B-U-K-K which are Hollywood-style stunt teeth. And the Ivy League meetings would have a tendency to go really, really long. And so after my you know, second or third time in those meetings, I decided that I was going to smuggle in some Hollywood-style stunt teeth, my Dr. Bucks. And, um, and I was covering my mouth, but then would show them across the room and... Uh, did you, did you point people. out any specific assistant coaches in the room at the time? <laughs> uh, I did, but I'm going to leave those guys uh, anonymous <laughs> for fear that I don't uh, derail 
their careers right now, <laughs> but they know who they are. <laughs> All right. The last question. This might be my favorite question from my boy here in Philly, my business partner at Big Four, Billy MCK. Billy McKinney. Hashtag Ask Towers. D1, Coach Royal Rumble. Who was the last man standing in the ring? Wow, the Royal Rumble. What a, what a, what a, what a question that is, huh? Oh, it's got a follow-up question, too, you're going to love. Um, and everyone's going to love out there. The Royal I, You know what? I'm going to say John. I'm going to say, I'm going to say John Torpy. <laughs> Why? Uh, well, because I played basketball with John Torpy, and, uh, and just his overall, uh, his overall size, I mean, he must be about 240 pounds, but he feels like he's like 340 when you try to move him underneath the hoop. And I'm going to say that there's probably not anybody coaching in Division One lacrosse that has the combination of mental toughness and uh, and anger and rage uh, fused together. He would be he would be my my pick. He would be my pick. My pick would actually be Ricky Saul. I would go with Ricky, uh, but that's but Torpy would be right in there. It'd probably be the top. But here's the follow-up question, Billy McKinney. Who were the first three to get tossed out of the ring? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, First three to get tossed out of the ring. Wow. That's a really good question. I love Tills, but I think Tills would get tossed out pretty quick. Uh, I think... Maybe. Um, I think that... uh, hmm. No, uh, wow, that's really. I'm trying to think about this. Uh, now, is there is there a discrimination as it relates to age? Is there is there discrimination as it relates to age? That's uh, your it's your question, At. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, well, you know, you got to probably say Bill Tierney. The guy's probably 60 years old. I think he would struggle <laughs> against Sean Nadlin and some of these younger guys. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm not going to put Dom in that group because Dom, even though he's uh, he's older, is uh, is a truck too. We used to play pickup basketball against Dom at basketball camp, and he was he was immovable. You know, totally immovable. Um, How about Corrigan? Does he slip under the radar? Does he make it really far? Because I think Corrigan's volatility, just based on his excitement on the sidelines, would make him tough to get out of the ring. So I would keep Kevin in there. Um, Let's see. Uh, Let's see. It's Kermit. Where's Kermit fall? Uh, Kermit's a Kermit's a hockey player, so Kermit would be okay. Uh, Feck's a hockey player, but I don't think Feck would be okay. I would say Feck would get bounced out pretty fast. (laughs) How about your alma mater? Does he does he last in there? What's this? What's come on? Listen, Lars is uh, Lars is probably has two percent body fat, and I think he would be able to find a way to uh, to stay in the ring. So I think Lars would be fine in there. Uh, you got one more, AT. Come on. Uh, wow, I got to think about this. I think Shills would have trouble. He's not—he's <laughs> not huge, and he's pretty slight, and uh, he's an elder statesman. Um, I could see him having trouble with uh, with the younger generation of coaches. Uh, that's our show for today. Uh, we're gonna get—we're uh, gonna dial it in for uh, later this week with our guest of the week. We'll announce that later this week. 
We got our picks coming up this week. Another exciting week of lacrosse. That's our show in your face. Week number four. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later this week.